Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 24, the Tuscarora War, part 2. For those of you that are just joining us, maybe you have a specific interest in the Tuscarora War, we'd recommend you go back two episodes to uh, meet the Tuscarora. That goes over a lot of the backstory on what led up to this war, and uh, this episode we will be concluding it. To give a quick recap, last time we left off where we thought the war had finished, but somehow a bunch of Cory Indians got together for a peace conference, and a bunch of them were massacred and hundreds were taken back to South Carolina as slaves. The problem with that is we don't really know who did it. There's three different theories. One, it was that sneaky double-crosser Barnwell from South Carolina, who after giving his word to not betray them, totally betrayed them. The second choice was Governor Hyde and the North Carolina government, who it may have been in their best interest to make sure that the war picked back up again because they wanted to basically eradicate all the Native Americans from the area, therefore opening up all this great prime cleared land that people could gobble up and also get his rewards for participating in the war. And then the third theory is it could have just been uh, third-party slavers that were just coming through from one of the other states to grab Indians and take them to sell to the West Indies. The evidence seems to point towards Barnwell, however. One loose end that we did not tie off from last time is whatever happened to Christopher de Graffenreid. That's right, if you remember, this whole thing started with Christopher de Graffenreid and John Lawson traveling up the Noose River... Uh, getting captured, the Tuscarora are put in the situation, do we let them go or do we declare war on them? So Lawson gets executed and de Graffenry this whole time has been kept prisoner in their town throughout this whole first half of the war. Correct. They felt like they needed to use him, one, as a bargaining chip, and secondly, they couldn't have him going off right after they killed John Lawson to warn everybody. So they kind of just kept him. He was free to roam around, but it was pretty obvious that if he left the village, he was going to be executed. And he thought about making a break for it several times, but he decided against it. Finally, they did let him go, but they had to get assured promises from him. One, they wanted to make sure that when he went back, that there would be real peace and that this war would not continue and his people in New Bern would keep out of it. Secondly, they were to make payments to the Tuscarora, amounting to a whole bunch of stuff, mainly guns and other supplies and trade goods. De Graffenreid, seeing that he had no choice, agreed to it, but the amazing thing about De Graffenreid is he actually kept up his end of the bargain and was very much against launching any kind of retaliatory strike against any of the Tuscarora tribes. Now, this could have been in his own city's best interest because they were very close to the Tuscarora. They were basically some of the first people hit when this war took off. But at the same time, this is actually going to hurt de Graffenried because all of his people that look up to him being the Baron of New Bern are now going to look at him like he's a coward because he's telling them, no, we're not going to fight back. We're going to give them all of these goods and try and get peace. Meanwhile, put yourself in the colonist place. They've just had their mother, wives, their children massacred. And now your leader's saying, don't worry, I'm going to give them all this stuff and we're going to go back to peace. But from his perspective, he's a nobleman from Europe and his word is his bond. So now after this massacre and mass capture by people at Corytown, the raids pick up again. There's random Tuscarora and other allied Indians striking different plantations and settlements all the time. People are too scared to go out and do pretty much anything. If they're going out to do farming, they've got to have other people standing there with guns loaded up just to keep watch to make sure that nobody's going to come and attack them. The court system is totally shut down because people dare not travel anywhere for fear of being ambushed. Governor Hyde, being this 
very well-to-do person, had pretty much no influence in trying to hold things together. He would put out a draft to try and get people into a militia, but there was a problem. He had this group of people called the Quakers, and what are Quakers known for? Peace. Pacifism. And they outright refused to muster into a militia, even though they threatened to fine them five pounds sterling if they refused to fight. You're thinking, that's okay, that's just the Quakers, they're just, you know, one-third of the population of this colony we should still be able to get up a pretty good-sized militia without them. But the problem is, you have all of these men that would be in fighting age, these young men with families, and they're not going to leave their wives and children to go off for new, who knows how long and leave their families completely undefended. So they're just ignoring the call. And as everything continues to descend into chaos on September 8, 1712, Governor Hyde up and dies from yellow fever. He's only 45. So the council is trying to figure out, okay, who do we have take over leadership now? Remember, Governor Hyde was the one that was involved in Carey's rebellion, and so he was never a popular guy to begin with, but now there's this power vacuum, and who are they going to select? And they can't really uh, put it up to the public again, because the last time that happened, it happened to be somebody they didn't like. So they, first of all, went with de Grafenried. He's He's their landlord, their noble from Europe. He very quickly declines this nomination. Most likely it was a very wise decision since he was not doing very well with aristocrats in the area or the popular vote. So finally the position fell to Thomas Pollock, who was made acting governor until the Lord's proprietor could send a replacement. Pollock was, how would I describe him, Caleb? I would say that he's kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge on steroids. He owned a huge amount of property throughout the area and he was suing people left and right and trying to collect every cent and pound he possibly could. He was one of the largest businessmen in North Carolina in the sense that he was into trading. He owned parts of ships. He owned plantations. He owned slaves. slaves. Uh, so he goes to work asking for help. And immediately, their closest colony neighbor is Virginia. And so he contacts Governor Spotswood. And we mentioned before that there was some finagling in the first part of the Tuscarora War, and Virginia offered to help, but then they were declined. So Spotswood, again, says that they can help send troops, and North Carolina can just pay them back when they have the money. The thing is, uh, North Carolina, they don't really want to pay it back. They're kind of hoping that somebody's just going to step up to the plate and volunteer to fund this thing, come down, save them, and do everything. Virginia comes up with this idea, how about you mortgage us uh, this large chunk of North Carolina? And that way, if you can't pay it back, we'll just keep the land. This doesn't go over very well because this large area that they want to mortgage is actually where Pollock. Pollock's two largest plantations are in this area. Uh, so he's not going to give up his own personal property. Most definitely not. So he basically says, uh, thanks, but no thanks, with a... Probably a few more uh, choice words in that. It says he was furious at the mm -hmm. offer. Which is ironic because Pollock ends up doing the same thing to de Grafenried because after the settlement at New Bern is hit, de Grafenried needs a lot of money to help rebuild. And so Pollock offers to loan de Grafenried the money, but he wants him to hold the mortgage for all of his lands. That's right. When de, when de Grafenried goes back to Europe, Pollock winds up with all his land because it was all mortgaged to him. So that's probably another reason why there's two types of people in this world. My dad always says those that pay interest and those that collect it. Pollock was no fool. He realized, I want to be the one collecting people's mortgages, not losing my own property to mortgages. 
And since he's controlling all of this, he starts assuming a vast amount of power. And pretty much anything he wants to get done gets done because people owe him money. And when they owe you money, they owe you a favor. Meanwhile, up in the northern Tuscarora area, we mentioned that one of the primary leaders up there was a guy named Chief Tom Blount. Now, Tom Blount, he was actually the one that they asked the opinion, what should we do with Christopher de Graffenry? correct me if I'm wrong, and he's the one that said, let him live but kill Lawson. And he has taken this position where he's going to stay out of this conflict. His northern Tuscarora tribe, they trade a lot with Virginia and with North Carolina, and they're not going to get involved. However, Chief Hancock of the lower Tuscarora has left Kachechnia and gone to Tom Blount seeking refuge from the English who are trying to kill him. They decide to pressure Tom Blount. They say that they're going to totally cut off trade if they don't turn over Hancock to them. Blount pretty much refuses because he says that would be a grave insult. He's an honored guest and we don't just betray our guests. But pressure begins to mount because Spotswood from Virginia really does cut off trade with him. And then all of a sudden, Blount hears about this new expedition that's going to be coming up from South Carolina. And he starts to worry that after they mop up with the lower Tuscarora, what's to stop this army that's already here from coming up and attacking his towns? So as the pressure builds on Blount, he realizes uh, the best thing probably would be to do is betray King Hancock. He can betray him and make himself look like his tribe or have their hands washed of this. Yeah, we sheltered him, but only because he's family. We didn't participate in the war, and now we're giving him to you. This could put my village in a much better position to make sure they didn't all get sold into slavery come the following war. Even though at the beginning he says he won't, all of a sudden he's come up with an idea on how to betray Hancock. And the idea he comes up with, and this sounds something, uh, it reminds me of Attila the Hun and his brother Bleda. They go out on a hunting trip, and Blount tells the Carolina government, I'm going to take him on a hunting trip, and when he doesn't expect it, I'm going to have everybody jump him. And that's exactly what he does. And Hancock is tied up, hog style, and taken back to Carolina and executed. They don't really go into details on how he was executed, but we have a feeling that his trial was pretty quick and his execution was even quicker. If you remember in our previous episode, Hancock was the one that led Kachechnia. And he just wanted de Grafenried and Lawson to turn back and not come up the river. But he felt challenged by his younger men and then eventually from Corey Tom instigating everything. And then when Lawson blew up in their face and threatened them with violence, they felt like they had no choice. And so now Hancock is executed being the man that didn't want the war. He tried to stop the war. He, then he finally did stop the war with peace after the siege at the Kachechnia fort. Then somebody does this raid to capture all these Indians and take them as slaves, reigniting the war. It just flares everything up again. And so Hancock is just kind of like this fall guy that the English just think is the ringleader, but he's really not. And once he's dead, it does nothing to stop the fighting. The raids just keep continuing. The following month, on November 25th, 1712, five of the Upper Tuscarora chiefs meet for a peace treaty with Pollock. These are Tom Blount's allied chiefs. Pollock wants them to attack the Lower Tuscarora and utterly wipe them out. And then, anybody that's left, he wants them sold into slavery. And, Pollock says, he wants it done by the next full moon. The Tuscarora chiefs walk away and they're just like, they agree to it in word, but they're like, we're not doing this. These are our cousins. We're not making war on them. And so they just decide to say, yeah, 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 we'll do it. And then they do nothing about it. But just to keep themselves in English graces so that they don't 
get attacked by the English themselves. This is pretty common practice, it seems like, throughout all of the colonies, where you basically just try to split the Native American nations to fight each other. In the meanwhile, you can keep growing stronger. And whenever you see these wars going on, it's always like 50 militiamen and then 600 Native American warriors, and they get them to do all the, the legwork and stuff. So that's exactly what he's trying to do with them. Now, meanwhile, back in South Carolina, the noble South Carolina government looks upon North Carolina as their weaker Christian brother that they have this obligation to help. They decide they are going to put together another expedition to go and help North Carolina. Now, everyone at the time thought that Barnwell would be the person put in charge. He had a quote-unquote successful campaign the year before, so why not put him in charge? The thing is, North Carolina made it very clear that if you are going to send an expedition, it needs to be anyone but Barnwell. You know, this raises some questions. Why were they so against Barnwell? I suspect one of them may be because the government ordered him not to make peace, and then after he fought his campaign, he instantly made peace. So the South Carolina government has to choose a new general, a new person to run this huge army to go in and invade North Carolina, and they come up with a man named Colonel James Moore. Now, James Moore, he did have some experience dealing with the Indians, particularly due to his father, who was a Barbados slave trader, former governor. You know, this, he's basically one of the most well-off families in South Carolina. And when young James Moore would accompany his father, they would go through and attack Indians from time to time and enslave them. In fact, the Appalachian Massacre, which is one of the largest Indian massacres in all colonial history, uh, happened with his father leading the expedition and his son as a young person tagging along. And that was in 1704. They went with 50 Englishmen and 1,000 Creek and Yamasee warriors into western Florida, and they attacked the Appalachian, who at the time were Spanish-allied Indians. They also attacked many Spanish settlements, such as St. Augustine, but finally, they defeated the Appalachians in 1704 and sent hundreds of them exported as slaves from Charleston to the West Indies. Now, an interesting thing about Colonel James Moore is he was only 31 years old. Andrew, how old are you? 32. You're 32. I'm turning 30 in a couple 30. months. So he was our age. So it's just funny to picture uh, he ends up having a, a relatively large force of Native Americans and colonists. And he's our age. That's a pretty big responsibility, and I imagine a pretty big honor. So he gets put in charge of this second expedition, and it's this time it's mainly made up of Yamasee, Appalachee, Chichaba, and also 300 Cherokee warriors. And also his tag-along brother, Maurice. Yeah, his brother Maurice was actually uh, Captain Maurice Moore, I believe. So soon the Moore brothers gather all their Indian allies and their colonial officers and they head out on their expedition to get more slaves. I mean, to save North Carolina. And once they're on their way, they attack a band of Indians who they thought were Tuscarora. They think that they've got a great victory right to begin with. They kill eight of these warriors and capture one, who they instantly give over to the other Cherokee to be sold off as a slave. But the problem was, these guys weren't warriors. In fact, they weren't even Tuscarora. They were diplomats from... You guessed it, Seneca diplomats from the Five Nations. Oh, crap. So they've just killed diplomats from the Five Nations, and this whole time they are terrified that the Five Nations are going to get involved in this war, and they just accidentally killed their senators 
who, to add insult to injury, after prodding the, the one survivor, he said, We were coming to tell the Tuscarora to make peace with the English. This kind of mistake could just screw up everything on the whole continent of North America. So when Moore arrives and meets with Governor Pollock, Pollock finds out that this guy is a Seneca ambassador, and he begins sweating bullets. And he instantly orders that this guy is freed. Uh, great thing is, we actually have the gentleman's name. His name was Anithia. He put the facts plain out there. He said, I have no idea why we're attacked. We are on a diplomatic mission from Alderaan, and all we want is peace. He's like, I thought that the English could be trusted, and we were on our way down to tell the Tuscarora to play nice and make peace, but now we're not so sure if this is a good idea. Uh, all the government officials begin kissing this guy's feet and making sincerest apologies, and they free him, and they free three other Tuscaroras and a Mochapunga Indian to accompany him back to New York to relate their desire for peace as well. And they give him a whole letter uh, explaining the whole details accurately. So in this letter, Pollock writes, they just want peace. They're sorry that the Tuscarora started this war, and these horrible Tuscarora killed hundreds of our people, and even when peace was made with Barnwell, they broke the peace within days. So, as you can see, this is totally not our fault, and we want you to know that. Now, uh, these facts that you're reading, Andrew, they sound a little um, askewed. Um, yeah, pretty much the opposite was true for all of it. But yes, that's what you're going to send back in diplomatic cables. So now that Colonel Moore is finally in North Carolina, Moore was pleased to see that this time North Carolina had their act together and that the governor had arranged everything. They had food, supplies, a place to stay. The, the only problem is, Andrew, uh, is they actually had none of those things. Uh, just like when Barnwell's expedition came through and he was so furious at the North Carolinians because they would never provide any supplies or men, Moore ends up having basically the same situation happen to him. Now, after Moore goes to New Bern and these other North Carolina cities and he can't find any food or anybody willing to house them or give them the supplies they need, he gets fed up and he marches his army to the northernmost part of North Carolina. Now, the interesting thing about this is if you recall, Chief Tom Blount's Tuscarora are in the northernmost part, and they were the ones that did not really engage in the war very much. So a lot of these northern North Carolinians didn't feel the pain of the wars as the, uh, the southern North Carolinians. So these people tended to just sit back, refuse to go to the draft, refuse to give any supplies. Also, there was a very high number of Quakers in this area. But Moore decides, I'm going to march up, and I'm going to go through their towns and take the supplies. So he marches his, I believe it's like 900 Indians and a, a little less than 100 colonist officers up there. And he basically tells the Indians, go out and uh, start bringing some cows and bringing some bushels of corn in. And now all of a sudden, all of the locals there are terrified of all these Indians there. And meanwhile, people are telling them, yeah, these are allied Indians. But who knows, they could betray us at any minute. And it, you wonder if this was intentional, if maybe Moore was trying to get everybody afraid of these 900 Indians there. They're going through eating everybody out of house and home. So all of a sudden, finally, the Quakers and these North Carolinians decide, okay, we'll give you the supplies we need if it just means you'll leave our town. And just like that, Moore finally has the supplies he needs to actually have an expedition. Just before Moore arrived, 
Chief Blount came to visit Governor Pollock, and he had some very legitimate concerns. He was worried again about this army he heard that was coming up from South Carolina and worried that they were going to attack his towns next. And he let Pollock know that he was visited by a hundred Seneca warriors, and they encouraged him to go to war against the British because the English just can't be trusted. I have no idea if this has to do with those other diplomats getting killed just a few weeks earlier. Probably has something to do with it. Blount said that he still wants to remain out of the fight, but he wants things fixed. Uh, mainly, Blount had one or two minor issues. Yeah, there were a couple, couple, you know, small transgressions that were done on Tom Blount. One, his wife and children and direct family members had been kidnapped to be sold into slavery, and that that kind of made things a little uncomfortable. Uh, when Pollock heard about that, he made sure that they were quickly freed and told people to leave the northern Tuscarora alone because we don't want to piss them off. Meanwhile, Moore, with his allied Indians, decides that he's going to set out and go and attack these southern Tuscaroras. And he brings along a name that we've heard before, uh, Louis Michel. The Frenchy. Swiss-ish the Swiss, guy. The Swiss German. Yeah, Swiss. With French name. With French name. He's the one that got drunk and beat up King Taylor's friend when they were trying to do the ah, original treaty. he's one of the guys that started this whole mess. Pretty much. And now he's tagging along because he wants to be helpful and kill Indians. On March 1st, 1713, they come to Neoharoka, which is a town about 15 miles up Kachechnia Creek past King Hancock's town. They had built a huge fort in where the creek had done like this horseshoe shape. So it's on a bend on Kachechnia Creek. It had towers going up on the corners, again with the two-story loopholes. And it also had a trench leading down to the river for watering canoes, kind of almost like a passageway and a tunnel. Think of it as a covered area and then dug down in the trench so that they could get supplies and water. This thing is actually much more sophisticated than even the fort at Kachechnia was. And if you remember the one at Kachechnia, earlier Barnwell noted how amazed he was because it was built much more like uh, a modern European fortress mm -hmm. in the sense it had towers and a moat and things like that. Now this one is even more impressive. The interesting thing to note here is we mentioned Harry, the runaway slave who helped them build the Kachechnia fort, but now Harry has been killed by Barnwell. So it's pretty obvious that the Tuscarora have learned themselves how to build a fort, and Neo Haroka was quite a feat. They also had two walls surrounding it, and then in the middle of the fort they had dug out bunkers Think of them like below-ground places for storage and also to keep people. And then they also had tunnels connecting these bunkers. The difference here also is they thought that this fort is pretty good. We've held out before. We're not going to send all their people to hide in the swamps. We're keeping everybody here. And if we die, we die. Yeah, in, in the past battles, they were always able to last to the end and then make a peace. So they didn't feel like this battle would be any different. They thought they could outlast the English because every other time they were able to outlast the English. And we're going to see this is going to be a very sad thing. When Moore arrives at the fort, they're again very befuddled. How are we possibly going to take this thing? The difference is Moore has a lot more people this time. Barnwell, a lot of his Indian allies had abandoned him, but Moore makes sure that we're not attacking any other small places. We're attacking the big place first because he didn't want his Indian allies to get a few prisoners and then retreat as well. So Moore begins setting up siege works. 
and they camp out for three weeks. Again, digging bunkers for themselves, setting up fortified positions, and he begins digging a tunnel towards the fort. Weeks later, when they finally make it to the outer wall, Moore goes and takes a book from Lord of the Rings, and he tries the Urukai strategy. Ladders? No, a mine. They take a huge keg of gunpowder and decide to put it right underneath the wall of the fort where they've dug. And he gives the order at 10 a.m. to blow the mine. And he's hoping that this will shatter the whole outer wall and they can just pour in and in all the confusion they can storm the fort. So they load the mine up. They've got it in the trench. They light the fuse. They run back and dunk for cover, plug their ears and wait for the explosion. And then they waited a little bit longer. And then they waited a lot longer. And nothing happened. The gunpowder wouldn't ignite. Well... You can't really say nothing happened. It is recorded that some smoke came up through the cracks. You see, the problem is when you store gunpowder uh, in a wet ditch for three weeks of building a trench, it gets a little moist and it doesn't want to uh, light properly. And that's what happened to poor Colonel Moore. So now Moore realizes that this means they have to storm the fort. The following day, he's not wasting any time. On March 21st, he orders an attack. He's just got a very bold strategy. He's going to have everybody rush the fort from every direction that they can possibly get to that's not covered by water. So he gives the order, charge, everybody goes in. Some troops begin taking heavy fire right away because they have these tower blockhouses that they can shoot from. But Moore was able to get up through the wall, and as they began pushing the sticks and timbers aside, they were able to make a gap, and they got inside. But the problem was, this was only the first wall. So it's pretty much hand-to-hand fighting at this point. You've just got to get into that little crevice, have people storm in, and you've got to fight one person each time. When you have hundreds of these people held up in neo Horoka, in fact, there may have actually been almost a thousand people inside neo Horoka. this was not something that happened and was over in a few minutes. This was hand-to-hand fighting all day. And by the end of the first day, they had just gotten inside the first ring, and they had set one of the blockhouses on fire, and then they had to stop because it was nighttime. On the second day, they continued the hand-to-hand combat fighting to get through the second wall, and they're scrambling around trying to light other parts of the fort on fire. But by the end of the second day, they had control of the fort, but everybody that was left is still held up at these bunkhouses down below. And they're thinking to themselves, how are we? There's hundreds of these people down here. How are we going to get them all out? Again, it's just a single doorway. You've got to fight one person to one person. And this is just going to gum up the works, and a lot of people could get killed doing this. De Graffenried, in his memoirs, writes back about the siege, and he has this quote. The savages showed themselves unspeakably brave, so much so that our soldiers had become masters of the fort and wanted to take out the women and children who were underground. They were hidden there along with the provisions. The savages who were groaning on the ground still continued to fight. So rather than risking his men to go in and clear these underground bunkers out, Moore orders the easier approach, and the easier approach is also the terrifying approach. He tells them to light them up, set the whole fort on fire, all the bunkhouses, burn them all to death. Uh, If Either they'll burn to death or they'll come out and we'll capture them. The thing is, like Andrew mentioned, there could have been a thousand people in this fort. There was at least 600, we know. And the majority of the people that are left at this point are the women and children. And they refuse to surrender. And we might be thinking, why the heck would you refuse to surrender? Why not just let them capture you? And it's because 
the Native American life was a life of freedom, and they would rather die, these ones in particular, than be sold to slavery and shipped off to the West Indies, or who knows where, and never see their family again, never see their homes again. When you think about it, that sounds a lot more like the American patriotic cause that we hear about in the Revolutionary War. Give me liberty or give me death. That's their mantra as well. If we get sold into slavery, we're dead anyway. So why not? Why give them the satisfaction of us working for them? Now, Moore gives records of his men and his allied Indians killed and also how many Tuscarora killed. But his men, he had uh, 34 white men killed, 39 wounded. His allied Indians, 35 killed, 55 wounded. That's a lot of men killed and wounded, but in comparison to the Tuscarora, they had nearly 400 people captured and taken as slaves and around 560 killed. To give this a little context, Caleb, you've heard of the infamous battle or massacre, which it really was, at Wounded Knee in 1890. During that time, the U.S. government came in and they were trying to put down what they said was an Indian uprising, but it was really just women and children that didn't want to give up their guns along with a few other men. And the U.S. Army comes in and slaughters about 300 of them. Here we're talking about 400 people captured and taken as slaves and 558 people killed. This Wounded Knee Massacre is nothing compared to this massacre at Neo-Hiroka. 300 people slaughtered at Wounded Knee versus 560 people killed and burned to death here at Neo-Hiroka, plus the other 400 people captured and taken as slaves. This just is no comparison whatsoever. It's an absolute horrible, horrible part of American history. And the real shame of it is nobody knows about this. There's a memorial built to this day at Neo-Hiroka, but you read nothing about this in a history book anywhere. You'll read about Wounded Knee, but not this. After the battle, the Indian allies that are there take their booty that they have, take some of the slaves, and that leaves more with about 100 Indian allies remaining. The Carolina people figured, this is the knockout blow we're looking for. Now there's going to be peace. There wasn't peace. This took out about a thousand of the Tuscarora, but there's still about 500 warriors of this southern group left, and they have the same mentality. We're going to fight to the death. These are our blood enemies now. There's no way we can have peace. The raids continue off and on. Now, meanwhile, back up in northern North Carolina, we mentioned how Blunt has already betrayed Hancock and sold him in to the hands of of the North Carolina government. And now all of a sudden, Pollock is coming and Pollock knows that if he can basically convince these northern Tuscarora to flat out really go to war and start turning over the ringleaders in these battles, he can truly end this war once and for all. So he's going to start trying to sweeten the pie and offer him more. And he comes up to his ear. And it's kind of amazing to look at this because you think of Blount originally turning down betraying Hancock. Then he agrees to betray Hancock, and now he's going to be offered a kingship. The North Carolina government comes to Blount and they say, you know what? You should be king of the Tuscarora. And not just the Tuscarora, but any Indians that live around this area. And we want to help you do that. But if we're going to help you do that, you need to really squash any more of this Tuscarora resistance. We want you to hand over any chief that was involved. We want you to make sure all the goods get returned to the colonies that were taken. And in return, all this will be yours. Sounds like somebody said that to Jesus once, too. That's what I pictured. Yeah. 
It was the devil, by the way, if you've never read the, the Gospels. Blount is like, King Blount. I like the sound of that. And again, it's not like they did all-out war, but they did start turning over and rounding up and doing raids on some of these people that just couldn't be calmed down. And this didn't happen overnight. It really took about two more years of random raiding and fighting. And so finally, in 1715, a peace treaty is signed by all the remaining parties. The Tuscarora that are left are just feeling totally deflated. They think to themselves, what, what do we have now? Well, we have to acknowledge Blount. Most of the warriors that have fought have been killed. Many other people have been sold into slavery. And so you're just looking at maybe a few hundred to a few thousand Tuscarora left in this southern band. And they don't feel comfortable with Blount either. They just don't like him. They think of him as a jerk, as a traitor. But he's their only option because... The North Carolina government won't talk deals with any of these other chiefs or any of these other Native Americans. Whenever they come and voice a complaint, they say, take it up with your king, and then he'll bring it up to us if it's important. So if you weren't on the good side of Blount, all of a sudden, anything that you had a complaint about would never be addressed by the colonists anymore. However, the Tuscarora have some admirers. They have some friends in high places. And they pay them a visit. Mainly, more ambassadors from the Five Nations come down and look at the situation. They say, look, guys, we are sorry that this war ended so horribly for you. How can you trust these English that they won't attack you again? If you want a safe place, come up to New York. We've been very safe for the last several decades. We've built a good power structure there. We're on good terms with the French and English up there. Why don't you come and make New York your new home? And a lot of these Tuscarora say, why don't we do that? What have we got to lose? There's nothing for us back here. Our homes are burned and destroyed. Our families are dead or captured or worse. And so a lot of them decide to begin migrating north. Not everyone at once, but it kind of starts this domino effect where, hey, my cousin went, my brother went. Maybe it's time that we go, too. I imagine as a few went up there, they sent back word, hey, guys, it's actually not that bad up here. You know, we're given some nice land. Nobody seems to bother us. And then once word gets back, everybody starts going up. Now, the Five Nations as well see this as a huge boon because they need to replenish their population as well. And in our next episode, we're going to talk about diplomacy and how the Five Nations start negotiating with other tribes to replenish their numbers through diplomacy and not through warfare. But they view it as great to have this influx of new people to support them. Now, it's interesting that uh, the Tuscarora, in comparison to other Native American nations, were able to keep their nation, and they carved out a spot for their nation amongst the five nations as opposed to being divvied up, sent to the other five nations as adoptees. Mm -hmm. We've seen many times now through warfare that dozens of different Indian tribes and nations have been captured forcibly and assimilated. And we're also going to talk about in another episode many other nations that come in willingly to be assimilated. But the Tuscarora are totally unique. One that probably helped them was they had much bigger numbers. All told, there's going to be thousands of them that end up migrating up to New York over the next several decades. Another possibility could be uh, maybe the five nations felt bad for egging them on to go to war and then it ended so badly they couldn't really take away their nation from them since they encouraged them to go into battle with the English. So as the years continue, the remaining Tuscaroras that have been forced into King Tom Blount's land decide, let's, let's just sell off the land we have, we'll get some money for it, and that'll be enough to get us supplies to get us up to New York. 
Ironically, about 60 or 70 Tuscarora come to the aid of South Carolina in the next couple years because the South Carolinans end up pissing off the Yamasee, who are the ones that allied with Barnwell and more to come up and lead these raids. But the Yamasee end up attacking South Carolina, and there's a whole huge war, which we're not going to get into, that happens down there. And so the Tuscarora from a couple towns decide, well, why don't we go and get back at these Yamasee for what they've done to us? And they end up coming down into South Carolina and fighting in the war. And the South Carolinans actually end up falling in love with these people and ask these 60 or 70 people to come and settle among themselves. And they want them to be right on the Savannah River to guard against any raiders that might be coming up. And they decide, all right, yeah, let's do it. And so as bitter enemies to South Carolina, they end up becoming very good friends. And guess who their neighbor was? Yeah, this this is just funny, but they end up living right next door to Colonel Barnwell. Yep. And he actually ends up befriending them. And so there's not much good that comes out of this war at all, but at least it's nice to see that something nice and happy happens. There's actually a record of a lawsuit in March the following year, as these Tuscarora are living here, there's a man named Daniel Callahan who comes down and he steals a canoe from these Tuscarora living in South Carolina. And he verbally threatens their chief, a man named Forrester. And so Forrester goes to South Carolina and to the governor and sues Callahan. And Callahan comes to defend himself and says that we should just bash the heads in of all these people and enslave the rest. The court did not rule in favor of Callahan. In fact, they awarded Forrester 20 shillings for the lost canoe, and they said that it should be paid in trade goods. And the person that actually ended up paying them was Barnwell. So it's nice again to see that there's actually some justice being done. Now back up in New York, the governor at the time is named Robert Hunter. And he starts hearing that the Five Nations are inviting the Tuscarora up to them. But the Tuscarora are kind of infamous now. And all they're hearing about in the newspapers is about savage Tuscarora people attacking white settlers. And now he's heard that the Five Nations are inviting them to move in and be their neighbors. Yeah, think of it this way. Don't just think of them as another Indian nation, but think of them as a nation that you have been at war with. The English have been at war with the Tuscarora, and all this time they're... Their North Carolina, South Carolina's problem. We don't have to deal with them. Now, oh, they've lost the war. Now they're coming to settle in your back lawn. A bunch of angry, decimated warriors are coming to live 100 miles from your towns and villages. So the Onondaga chief Tiganosaurans comes with other sachems to a council at Albany. And he pretty much tells Governor Hunter, this is our land. We can do whatever we want. It's not our problem. And this is what he said. The Tuscarora are come to shelter themselves among the five nations. They were of us, they went from us long ago, and are now returned and promised to live peacefully among us. Since there is a peace now everywhere, we have received them. We desire that you look upon the Tuscarora that are come to live among us as our children, who shall obey all our commands and live peacefully and orderly. And who's going to say no to that? These are refugees, they are our relatives, They left maybe 1,200 years ago, archaeologists think, from New York, and they're our long-lost cousins, and they're back, and we're not giving up. We're keeping them. So deal with it. By 1722, at least 1,500 Tuscarora had moved to New York. And in that year, they made it official that they were making them a full member of their League of Nations. 
The interesting thing is, again, they're given full status, but they're not quite given full status, meaning they don't get sachems that are put onto the 50 sachem council. And why that is, is because, like we just said, they are looking at them as their little brothers who uh, they are going to look after. So in that sense, the Oneida sachems would be speaking not only for the Oneida, but also for the Tuscarora. So if the Tuscarora had an issue or something they wanted to address, they would still come to the council, but they would just ask an Oneida brother to speak on their behalf. So it really wasn't a bad deal. As the years continue, more and more people become disillusioned with King Tom Blount, and he finally dies in 1739. And then his son, James Blount, becomes chief until 1748. They're trying to make a dynasty out of this because normally when you die, it's not your son that takes over. It's usually your sister's son. Well, also normally you don't become a king of a nation either. Mm. You become an appointed sachem and you rule amongst your council. A few years after that, by 1754, on this reservation that the English have set up, they call it the Indian Woods Reservation, the Tuscarora have 301 people left. Everybody else is either living off the reservation, hiding out in swamps, or they've moved somewhere else, mainly to New York. And I think when we started this and Meet the Tuscarora, I think they were projecting there could have been 5,000 Tuscarora. Six to 10,000. Six to 10,000. So now between either dead, enslaved, or moved away, they're down to 300 people. So I hope, Blount, that your kingdom was worth it. Yeah, he ends up becoming a king of... What's the point? You, you win the war and you get the title king, but you have nobody to rule over. Then in 1766, it's recorded that a man named Thomas Basket was chief. And in that year, they sold off 21,000 acres to finance their move to New York. They got 1,500 pounds for it, sterling, which is, I guess that's a pretty good price for the year. Uh, so then there's even less people. By 1803, there's 3,000 acres left, and they sold that off. And again, most of the people that are left moved to New York. In 1831, North Carolina, just to clear things out on their books, this is far after the United States is established, they pay the Tuscarora Nation of New York for the last land that's there, and the reservation is officially extinguished. That's not to say that all the Tuscarora are gone. There's still some people that are around in North Carolina that were scattered. They had no communal lands. And in recent years, the descendants of these people have tried to get back together to reband and become recognized by the U.S. government. But officially, the United States government does not recognize these people in South Carolina as an official Indian tribe. And the interesting thing is neither do the Tuscarora Nation that live up in New York or Canada. They don't recognize them either because they say, we made a decision that everybody's moving to New York and anybody that wanted to stay behind, they just disassociated with us. We're the real Tuscarora Nation. And there's kind of a little bit of an animosity sometimes between those two groups. But again, the the population in Carolinas is very, very small. For all intents and purposes, in our narrative, we're not going to be talking about the Tuscarora down in the Carolinas anymore, since there's very few of them left. We're going to be talking about them as they influence the now six nations in New York. And now that there's six nations, the Haudenosaunee are going to become much stronger. And they're going to need it because things are going to start happening between the French and English, and they're going to be set on a collision course that's going to lead to a huge war. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. I know a lot of you have been excited and waiting to hear when the Tuscarora are going to come into the narrative. They are here now. Uh, Where are we going from here, Andrew? Things are going to start picking up very fast. The world is changing quickly. 
Next time we're going to talk about diplomacy and setting up the French and Indian War, also called over in Europe the Seven Years' War. And this is going to be, again, a multi-part series. And then, after the French and Indian War, it's going to lead into the American Revolution. And in both these wars, the Six Nations are pivotal players involved in both of them. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed this, Andrew. I, I almost couldn't believe it, but come Tuesday... It's our one-year anniversary from when we started this show. How many episodes did we get in? We were able to do 24 official shows as well as four Legends episodes. So 28 episodes. That's pretty exciting for me because that means that we actually stuck somewhat to our episode every two weeks, which is what we try to do for you guys. And sorry about this episode. I think we're closer to three weeks on this one. But there's actually a good excuse for that, and that is what Andrew and I started this podcast I'm not sure if you know this, but this is our first podcast. It's hard to tell because of how smooth our voices are and how professional our podcast is, but we didn't know what the heck we were doing. So like many podcasters that start a show, some of their early episodes are, a polite way of putting it, really bad. We just weren't satisfied with some of our earlier episodes, so Andrew and I have begun a little campaign to redo, re-record, and remaster, now that we are expert podcasters, And give you guys a better quality show. So last week, we actually re-recorded The Three Sisters, our fourth show. So we didn't put it on as a new show because we know you guys don't want to all get a notification and then be like, I've already heard this show. But if you do want to re-listen to it, we added about 20 minutes worth of content and also uh, just re-recorded it a lot better. It's a pretty good show, if I do say so myself. So go ahead and go to iTunes and listen to The Three Sisters. So as we continue over the next year, we want to continue talking about the history. This is a topic that we love and we want to do it justice, so we're going to take our time. We plan on doing this for at least another year and maybe more. So if you guys could give us a birthday present, since you know we are putting the show out for free and everything. I mean, it is the least you could do. Really, it is. If you could go onto iTunes and go and leave us a positive review, then we'll also be sure to include you into our Wild Sweet Potato Clan on our website, but also... We really want to start a campaign in this coming year where if you guys could just share us everywhere, talk about it to your coworkers, put it on your Facebook page, share an episode here or an article there. We really want to get the word out, not for our benefit, but just because we want to raise awareness about this forgotten history that needs to be told. And we want to do it in an entertaining way. The more people that know about it, the more people that can share it. And the harder we'll try if we know more people are listening. We might be like, ah, we only got uh, 1,500 downloads today, so uh, I'm not going to try too hard. But if it was like, eh, we're getting like 3,000 downloads a day, I suppose we should put a little more effort into this thing. We're being very sarcastic because we do appreciate everybody that has been listening to us over this year. We've actually been blown away by the amount of support that we've gotten. It's actually a lot more than we thought. Yeah, I think when we first started the show, we mentioned... uh, you know, it'd be cool if we could get like 50 downloads a week, and we've been getting thousands of downloads sometimes a week now. Yeah, over that. We couldn't have done that without you. I mean, I suppose we could sit around and play our own show 20 times a day to try and bump <laughs> the stats, but I don't have time for that. I'm too busy researching. So we thank you and do appreciate all of you. Feel free to email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. Message us on Facebook. Like we always say, we respond to 100% of our messages. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you next week.